Welcome to Good Life. I'm Dean Wilson. I'm so glad you're with us wherever you are. If you're joining us on television here in Santa Barbara, we welcome you. And so many of you are finding us at goodlifetelevision.org and our YouTube channel, social media platforms. And now over the last few months, we've just seen lots of you join us on the podcast, which is great. Good Life Conversations is the podcast. You can find us on all the podcast platforms and we're so excited about all the guests we've been having goodlifetelevision.org you can see all the long form interviews our youtube page you can see all the long form interviews and then you can see what we call power clips where we break up these interviews into some of the great moments and poignant thoughts uh so check those out as well you know i think if you went around the world one common denominator is that you know everybody is looking for the good life sometimes we get confused about what that is and we think it's found in money or titles or position or comfort but what we're talking about is kind of the real stuff and the real life and how do we work through real struggles and um so we're we're just excited to be here and we're excited that you are here with us i'm really excited about my guest today i've been i was reading about him most of the night last night, uh, Dr. Mark Goulston is with me. Dr. Goulston, welcome. Uh, I'm glad to be here and looking forward to what we talk about. Yeah, well, and so I'll just give a quick introduction. Uh, you can go to markgoulston.com, by the way, which is G-O-U-L-S-T-O-N. So markgoulston.com is where you can find him. Dr. Goulston is one of the world's leading experts on healthy conflict. He's a healthy conflict coach. He's an author of a book that we're going to talk about called Just Listen. He's the host of a really powerful and popular uh podcast called My Wake Up Call. Uh, Dr. Goulston has actually been a former FBI hostage negotiation trainer. Uh, he's been a psychiatrist and he's been a, a professor of psychiatry um, at UCLA. And so it's quite a background, quite a career. But let's start kind of further back, Dr. Goulston. Where did you grow up and kind of talk a little bit about your upbringing? I grew up just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, and uh, in a suburb called Newton, Massachusetts. Uh, don't hold it against me, but Joe Rogan and I went to the same high school. He, uh. went, he went there a number of years later, as did B.J. Novak and uh, someone else from the office. And, uh, and uh, so I finished high school there. I went to undergraduate school at UC Berkeley. Then I went to medical school at Boston University, and then I went and trained in psychiatry at UCLA, and and then expanded my work uh, beyond that. So, well, let's let's kind of go into a little bit of your career in terms of psychiatry, um, and, and let, let's talk about that because I think uh, it seems like the, in this day and age mental health, hopefully there's some destigmatizing going on related to mental health, related to the importance of mental health. Talk about your perspective on that. Well, I think there still is quite a stigma. In fact, I wrote a couple books. I co-authored a couple books during the pandemic. One of them is called Why Cope When You Can Heal. And I co-authored it with the former CEO of Long Beach Memorial Hospital, a wonderful female leader, Diana Handel. She led that hospital through a double homicide by an employee of the month, and then he killed himself. And 
The subtitle of Why Cope When You Could Heal is how healthcare heroes of COVID-19 can recover from PTSD, PTSD. And it was a marketing mistake, Dean, because if we had said recovering from trauma, it would have had a wider readership. But because of the stigma in the medical profession and in the military, people still feel the stigma about reaching out. It'll be held against them. And so we need to destigmatize it. And the more that people that we can look up to as strong and resilient who have been through it successfully and learn from it, I, I think that does uh, a great deal to help destigmatize it. Yeah. What is your, I'm just interested in this in terms of a psychiatrist that has had as much experience as you, as you have, what, what is your approach or what is your thought process at the beginning when you're sitting down with somebody? Well, I have a little bit of a personal backstory. Are those allowed? <laughs> they are. Um, I, I, I'm, really proud of what I've accomplished, but I think my single greatest personal accomplishment is I dropped out of medical school twice and graduated. <laughs> and I, I didn't drop out to see the world. I dropped out because I believe I had untreated depression. Mm. Dropped out, uh, took a year off, and was working in blue-collar jobs that I still romanticized because they were just so stress-free. And then mm. I came back and the depression came back and the school wanted to kick me out because they were losing matching funds. And I came from a background, Dean, where you're only as good and you're only worth as much as you can do. And so I, I kind of bottomed out and I met with the head of the school who really cared about losing matching funds. And I don't even remember the meeting, but he sent a letter to the dean of students who cares about students and that dean of students called me and said, you better get in here. I have a letter from the from the big dean. And I was at a low point in my life. And, and what the dean of students did for me is he gave me the trifecta of hope, which is something that later on I used for 30 years with my suicidal patients, and none of them died by suicide. So I don't know if you can understand having a background where you're only worth what you can do and accomplish mm -hmm. and you feel low because you can't. So I'm meeting with the Dean of students and he says to me, uh, here's the, here's the letter from the main Dean met with Mr. Goulston talked about other careers. I'm advising the promotions committee that he'd be asked to withdraw. I was passing everything. So they couldn't really kick me out. And I said, what does this mean? And he said, you've been kicked out. And it was like a body blow. In fact, I'm not a particularly, I guess I'm spiritual, but I'm not particularly religious. And I, and my cheeks got all wet and I thought I was bleeding. I just kept looking at my hands like I'm looking at them now. And he said to me, Mark, you didn't mess up, but you are messed up. Mm. But if you got unmessed up, I think the school would be glad they gave you a second chance. Mm. And what happens is the compassion just knocked me over. So here's the trifecta of hope he gave me. He said, 
even if you don't get unmasked up, even if you don't become a doctor, even if you don't do anything with the rest of your life, I'd be proud to know you. Mm. Yes, he was saying, uh, you have qualities in you that you don't have to perform to be valuable. He said, I'd be proud to know you. Uh, and because you have something inside you that the world needs, but you won't, wow. you won't know it until you're 35. So, so the first thing is unconditional acceptance. You have something in you that makes you worthwhile to me. Uh, it, you have something that the world needs, uh, but you won't know it, Mark, until you're 35. So he saw a future for me. That's the second arm of the trifecta. And then he said, and then he pointed at me and he said, uh, and uh, you deserve to be on this planet. And then <laughs> he, pointed, he pointed his finger at me and I'm just sobbing. I can feel it right now. He said, you deserve to be on this planet and you're going to let me help you. Because if he had said, give me a call, I might have gone back to my apartment. I might not be here today. But the trifecta of unconditional love, seeing a future for me that I couldn't, and his going to bat for me against the entire medical school because he saw something in me that I didn't. Oh, my gosh. How beautiful. So so I took what happened is I took a year off and I went to something called the Menninger Foundation. It's now in Houston. It used to be in Topeka, Kansas. And I went there and I grew up outside of Boston and I didn't know anything about schizophrenic farm, boy, farm boys, but I'm there helping them. I'm there getting through to them. The dean must have seen something that I didn't see. And and it was interesting. Uh, I I would asked the psychiatrist at Topeka State Hospital, is this legitimate? This is not like medical school. <laughs> and they said, no, no, th this is a legitimate field. And you've got a knack. Mm. And when they said that to me, Dean, I have a knack. I get something worthwhile. Right. And so then I took that year off, came back, finished medical school. And then I went uh, to UCLA and did a residency in psychiatry. And so the Dean of Students was my first mentor. And then my second mentor was a pioneer in the field of suicide prevention. And he kept referring me these high, still suicidal inpatients that needed to be discharged. But in order for that to happen, an outside doctor had to be willing to see them. Hmm. And... Uh, and here's an interesting thing. There was a great, it was my good fortune that a fellowship I was going to get fell through. So I just decided, well, I'll put up a shingle, see if anyone comes to see me. And, uh, and I was fortunate because as I was seated with deeply depressed and suicidal patients, and I look into their eyes, what they were screaming out at me in their eyes was, and they're just like this, but their eyes were looking at me and their eyes were saying, you're checking boxes and I'm running out of time. So I threw away the boxes and I just dove into their eyes. And so for many years when I would see patients, now realize these are you know fairly depressed people or anxious people, but you know mostly depressed people. And, and 
if you're listening or viewing this, write this down what I'm going to say if you're worried about someone. Uh, when I dove into their eyes, all I looked for and listened for was hurt, fear, anger, and they're running out of time before they did something destructive. Mm. The hurt was the pain they couldn't take. The fear was, I can't take it anymore. You know, I, I'm sorry, I just can't take it anymore. Uh, the anger was often being treated in certain ways uh, out of the fear of the person treating them, including their parents. So something that I discovered, and in my book, Why Cope When You Can Heal, we introduced this to the world, and it's called surgical empathy. Surgical empathy. So uh, if you've never been really depressed, you might not understand this, but some of your viewers and listeners might. When you're really depressed, you form a psychological adhesion to death to take the pain away. It's not an attachment, it's an adhesion, just like you get after surgery. So to break an adhesion, just like in surgery, you have to go in and they have to feel felt by you and less alone in the dark night of the soul. And if they feel felt by you without you throwing treatments at them prematurely, they may let go of death and grab on to surgical empathy. Wow. Feel felt by you. Can I give you an anecdote that sort of changed things? I, I, I tell long stories and you're, you're no, giving, I, you're giving I me could, a long I, I could listen to you all day. Well, you're giving me a long leash. So, so one of the people that Dr. Schneidman, uh, the suicide specialist sent to me, I'll call her Nancy. And she had made three suicide attempts and had been in the hospital uh, at least a couple months every year for several years before I started seeing her. And way back then, you could be in a hospital for a month or two months. And I didn't think I was helping her at all. She would come in. She wouldn't make eye contact with me. So if you're me and this is Nancy, she'd be like this. And way back then, I used to moonlight at... Uh, Metropolitan State Hospital in Norwalk, California. So moon, moonlighting means you cover for the other psychiatrists, the doctors on the weekend. And sometimes you could be up 24 hours or longer because you're, you're going to put out a figurative and sometimes literal fires on the inpatient wards of the state hospital and calming people down and admitting people. And sometimes you just, you just don't get any sleep. So there was a Monday and she was there. And again, I'm thinking to myself, I'm not helping her. But I've been seeing her six months. And that was the longest she'd gone without a hospitalization or a suicide attempt. So she's looking at me like this, Dean. And as I'm looking at her, like I'm looking at you, all the color in the room turned to black and white. So I'm looking at the room and it's black and white. It's like a black and white photo. And I get the chills. And I thought, I'm having a seizure or a stroke. So because I'm a medical doctor, I'm a psychiatrist, I did a neurologic exam on myself, which wasn't rude because she wasn't looking at me. And I'm looking at my finger like this, like this, to see if I'm having double vision. I'm tapping my elbows. And she's just like this. And then I realized I'm not having a stroke or seizure. And then I had this crazy idea. 
getting back to the feeling felt, I had this idea that I was looking out at the world through her eyes. Mm. And it felt black and white and cold. So because I was sleep deprived, I blurted something out that normally I wouldn't. I said, Nancy, I didn't know it was so bad and I can't help you kill yourself. But if you do, I will still think well of you. Mm. I'll miss you. And maybe I'll understand why you had to do it to get out of the pain. And I thought to myself, did I think that I did I say that? Because if I said it, I just gave her permission. Oh, I'm and that was the first time she looked at me, Dean. Really? Oh, yeah. And she looked, she grabbed onto my eyes. And I thought she was going to say, thank you for understanding. I'm overdue. And I was a little nervous. I said, what are you thinking? And she looked right into my eyes. And she said, if you can really understand why I might have to kill myself to get out of the pain, maybe I won't need to. Oh. And then she smiled. And then I grabbed onto her eyes. Because, you know, this is the first time I'm making this kind of contact. And I said, I'll tell you what we're going to do. I'm not going to throw treatments at you that have been tried that haven't worked unless you request them. You've been through everything. Would that be okay? And she looked at me with a look that said, keep talking. I'm intrigued. And then I leaned deeper into her eyes. And I said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to find you wherever you are, and I'm going to keep you company there as long as it takes, because I don't want you to be alone there anymore. Would that be okay? And she, her eyes teared up. And a lot of people are saying, well, we can't do that. Well, uh, well, uh, I want to give, I, I like to give useful information and Three or four years ago, I spoke in Moscow with a Nobel Prize winner named Daniel Kahneman. Yeah, I know. Thinking fast and slow. And and I was one of the main speakers because five of my books have done pretty well uh, in Moscow. And something that I'm teaching everybody, and I'm going to teach you if you're okay, Dean. Yes, please. What I And there's a little video clip of it on YouTube is there were a thousand Russian businessmen and businesswomen. These are good people. I'm not getting into the politics here. And I said to them, right now you're listening to me, but underneath you listening to me, you're listening for something. And if I focus on you listening to me and I throw a bunch of bullet points at you, if I'm entertaining, you know, you'll write down the bullet points. Most of them won't work because, you know, I'm a psychologist type. I'm an American. And you'll just say, well, he was entertaining. I said, so if I focus on you listening to me and I put up a PowerPoint, which I don't use, you'll give me your mind for an hour. And then I changed my tone so they could hear my tone, uh, even though I it was translated into Russian. And I said, but if I focus on what you're listening for, and I get it without you telling me it, and I deliver it, you'll give me everything. Mm. And then I said, "Here's is this what you're listening for? If you're business people, you're listening for a way to get positive, measurable results, because then you'll get a raise and more, uh, and, and uh, uh, more money. Is that true? Duh. 
And then I said, and you're listening for a way to do it that's less stressful because you're all drinking too much, you're eating too much. It's a real mess. Are you listening for that? They go, duh. And then I said, finally, what you're listening for is for me to give you something that you can use immediately and you don't have to buy a book. And I haven't written that book yet. And I may never write that book. And you don't have to take a course because you don't have the time to take a course. So if I could give you something that was immediately doable by you uh, and it got you better results with less stress, would it be worth the money you paid on a day of your time? And they went, da, da, da. I said, sit down. I got to give a presentation here. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to try this on you, Dean. Are you game? I'm, I'm in. So, uh, so you're listening to me, and you're giving me a long leash, and you know, and and I hope this doesn't backfire. Uh, <laughs> but underneath you listening to me, tell me if this is what you're listening for. I think your audience trusting you having confidence in you respecting you matters greatly to you and you want to honor them and that by bringing them value mm -hmm. and and the value is something that will touch them reach their lives maybe give them some tips to make their lives immediately better mm -hmm. and you're listening for uh, is this guest going to give value to my audience and because it's live, you're probably also listening for, you know, someone who might be a best-selling author, but they're not giving much value. You know, they're, you know, they're they're kind of off on tangents. Uh, you're thinking my audience is not relating to this at all. I don't know if you have foot signals, but you're signaling someone in the control booth. You know, you know how can we go to something else from this? <laughs> because, because you don't want to waste people's time. Right. So is that true? Yeah. And, yeah. And I will tell you something because I want to give some value. I've given some stories. I don't know if I've given any value yet. Whoever you're with, uh, your spouse, your child, uh, if you can realize that underneath what they're saying to you, they're listening for something. I was just uh, I was just about to do a podcast interview with someone and uh i'm i'm connected with a someone who's become a close friend his 14 year old son died by suicide four years ago and he's created he's created a documentary that i think will fundamentally change how parents and teenagers relate uh, what he did is he interviewed 10 teenagers who are all doing well, but he interviewed them. Tell me about your sad moments. And what happens is they're mesmerizing. And I was about to do a podcast with someone who I'm kind of a mentor to. This was a couple hours ago. And I said, and we can do this offline, Dean, if you like. I said, I'm showing everyone a clip from this video uh, because it's not going to be shown on YouTube or Netflix because the cyber bullies would push some of these teenagers over the edge. And so I showed it to this, you know, notable person. And he said, uh, I can't do the podcast. Let's reschedule it. I said, why? 
he said, I just saw my daughter in that. And then we had a conversation. He said, you know, my daughter's frustrated with school. She's 13, she's 14. And she and and she'll talk about being frustrated with math. Uh, and, and, and I become a little bit of an empath from all these years. I, I can sometimes put into words what people are feeling, including you. So he told me what's going on. And if you're listening in and you're getting into locking horns with one of your teenagers, and you want them to be able to express the hurt and fear underneath the anger, why do I have to take math? Why do I have to take such and such? So he shared that with me. And uh, and he said, we get into this. Uh, and I said, well, what do you do? He said, well, she gets angry. And then, you know, th then we just sort of say, well, you know, take a time out. And, you know, we're agitated. And I told him, I said, what I want you to do is I want you to look into your daughter's eyes when she's yelling about something. And just absorb it. And then look into her eyes and feel this as deeply as you can and say to your daughter, what are you listening for from me? What do you want from me? And then if she doesn't have the words for it, I told him, try this. Uh, Honey, is what you're telling me, Daddy, I can't make the hurt go away. Mm. And he just started to tear up and I'm tearing up because that's what's going on. Your kids are good, but they can't make the hurt go away. And if they don't express it as hurt and they're acting out, you react to their acting out. And so I'm very excited because I think this video has the, has the potential to change how parents and teenagers connect with each other. And it will only be in high school auditoriums. It'll be a parents program. It's 45 minutes. I'll share it with you afterwards. You cannot share it. And it'll be followed by parents and teens from the community who have successfully been through these things. Because what will happen is parents will be mesmerized. And when I've shared it with parents, the same thing happens every time. They watch it. They go home. They look at their kids and they start crying and their kids say, what's, what's the matter, dad? What's the matter, mom? And they all say the same thing. I just realized how much I love you mm. because what they're thinking is what would I do if you took your life? Right. Wow. So that's a long leash. You got to ask me a question, Dean. I was going to, I had some questions prepared. Um, Sorry. No, I, this, Dr. Grilston, this is, that is absolutely stunning. Um, we're like out of time. This is, by the way, this is Suicide Prevention Month, September. Dr. Goulston has written, the book is Just Listen. The podcast is my wake-up call. Um, if you've just heard this, then you're interested because that, that, that is uh, stunning. And I am so grateful to meet you. Uh, unconditional love. There's a future. You have a knack. There's a lot of little takeaways from this and uh, how we can relate to our, to our kids. How can we relate to our friends to feel what they're feeling? Man, 
I'm going to watch this. I don't watch all the interviews because I can't stand watching myself. I'm going to watch this one several times. Dr. Goulston, thank you. Well, thank you for abandoning your questions. <laughs> I I love it. Dr. Mark Goulston, everybody. MarkGoulston.com. G-O-G-O-U-L-S-T-O-N. MarkGoulston.com. It's a pleasure, sir. Thank you for everything you're doing. Thank you. And we'll see you all next time. <laughs>